Mobi.co. This is the flagship pod, a weekly podcast about the stock market, the economy, and the various market forces that power the world around you. As always, I'm your host, Peter Starr, bringing you this time kind of a special, slightly early episode as we kind of dive into inflation falling apart a little bit on Thursday as opposed to an episode on Friday. We wanted to give you guys more of a live reaction considering that, you know, the economy is in a very interesting place right now. Main news today, obviously, audience, is the CPI came in at only 0.1% month over month being raised in December, which amounts to a 6.1 increase year over year. This is the smallest increase we've seen since like 2020 and is a genuinely, genuinely awesome sign, but still three times where we want to be, according to the Fed. So a very interesting sign as the market reacts to this. The market is only up mildly on this news. Crypto, meanwhile, is absolutely exploding off of this and some other pieces of good news. So a lot of things to sort of go into as we begin to unpack our 2023 outlook as inflation continues to be, you know, on the positive side. As always, to help me kind of understand that and unpack this, we are joined by Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at Moby.co. Justin, dude, I mean, it's an exciting day, right? We're podcasting on a Thursday, so it must be important, right? Yeah, I mean, we moved up today's schedule in order to talk about the inflation report that came out today. Single-handedly, the the most important thing to discuss. Better to give everyone a live reaction today instead of wait till tomorrow. So I'm excited to bump this up and kind of dive straight to into it. Exactly. And the only thing interesting happening tomorrow anyway is the sort of earnings season getting kicked off by banks and stuff. But those are all kind of largely priced in. We shouldn't expect anything dramatic out of there. So it's important to do this more live and get this to you uh, on a Friday as opposed to wait for the whole weekend's worth of news to happen and get it to you on a Monday. So, Justin, let's let's get into this. The market almost exactly expected a 0.1% increase month over month. And it's really interesting to see all the little factors that are kind of driving inflation right now. Obviously, energy keeps crashing and has crashed from December into January as well, which gives us a lot of confidence about where the CPI is going to be next month. Uh, The main thing driving the bus now is eggs. Uh, Food prices keep blowing up on supply chain issues. Is that something that's going to keep increasing? Are we finally seeing like consistently inflation go down? How does this really affect our 2023 outlook? It's It's a bit of a mixed bag right now because you have consumer prices that finally fell down which is extremely healthy. The the Fed in general wants two over two around two percent year over year inflation, <clears throat> and the numbers now are starting to where they're peaking around the high sevens are now into six and a half, and even month over month are starting to decrease, which is good. But the real thing that you need to look for that's underlying kind of that information is that if you exclude food and energy prices, it actually rose point three, um, which is a separate conversation, but effectively energy prices fluctuate so much, they go up, they go down. It's a very geopolitical driven based on what's going on in Russia and the Middle East and, and all this other stuff. So typically economists do strip it out um, so they have a better understanding of what's truly going on. And so when you strip out those things, inflation actually rose again month over month. Um, it's still very tame and is starting to get in line with relative to what we're getting. But Again, I don't think it's enough for the Fed to come in uh, and ultimately change the way that they've been speaking in terms of changing their policy as it relates to interest rates for their raising for the rest of the year. So, I mean, long story short, it's a step in the right direction, but it's not enough to fundamentally alter what the, the Fed is going to do. And if anything, again, continues to deviate us from the rest of the world as the rest of the world still struggles with inflation, while for us, gas prices are starting to get more under control. And as we've been saying for a while now, we're starting to get into this really interesting situation where 
the world, if anything, becomes more split. And what happens in the U.S. isn't necessarily what happens to the rest of the world. And that's going to be really a key theme for us, as we've mentioned before. Companies bringing back a lot of their operations back to North America, um, bringing the supply chain back onshore. And so there's a there's a lot to unpack in the inflation report. But long story short, uh, in the U.S. specifically, trending in the right direction and not enough for things to change. But things will start to really deviate uh, globally, I think, over the next few years. Yeah, that's the main thing we want to get into in the sort of back half of this episode audience is talking about the sort of international bifurcation as we watch sort of policy shifts in China as well as Russia gear up for what is looking like their big offensive to try to, you know, get a little bit ground back or like be the deciding factor in this Ukrainian invasion that is entering into its 11th month, almost its full year anniversary. So we'll get into that into a second, but let's kind of talk about, let's see if we can't find any forward leading indicators in this inflation report audience. So you can get a better sense of, you know, what we're seeing here. Two main things that are really important to look at are first of all, um, as you like, like Justin said, what we saw was less food and energy. Inflation is still up five percent, five point seven percent year over year, which is um, concerning, right? Because we are one supply shock away from energy prices just shooting us back up. But what's really interesting is seeing two major lines in, in the inflation report kind of give us some interesting forward-leading indicators as opposed to the lagging indicator that the CPI usually is. First and foremost, two areas where inflation was already going down was both rent and used car prices. And that's only in December. And those prices have both fallen significantly from the middle of December into the middle of January, which where we are right now. So there's a lot of really interesting aspects of this that kind of show us a trend line where rent prices are going down and car prices are going down in such a way, thanks Carvana, that we're going to potentially get into a position where we'll see some more deflationary pressure, unless of course we see another energy supply shock. So a really encouraging sign, but of course the CPI is an important piece of data, but it doesn't mean anything until the Fed reacts to that. And that's not for another two weeks until January 31st, such February 1st, when the Fed has its you know, uh, monthly meeting and we get, you know, word from Jerome Powell. Now we're going to be raising interest rates. So with, with this in mind, Justin, I know we're in a volatile position. This is a great report. The market's only up mildly because the market expected this much and was kind of hoping for more. Basically, if you look at this in your Jerome Powell, is this your sign to really slow things down a lot in terms of um, rates raises, like actually stop raising rates sometime in 2023? Or do you still see this kind of extended period of rates increases lasting throughout the entire year, potentially completely choking what little recovery we might be having right now? No, I think it's, I mean, listen, the the number one thing people want to understand, and for most people listening to this podcast, it's, do they give a shit about inflation? Do they care about interest rates? I mean, it's like, it's boring as hell. Like, let's be honest. What we want to understand is, Based on those things, does the Fed change anything? And does that ultimately affect our investments and how much money we have? Those are the things we we want to be paying attention to. So our job here is to do a lot of the analysis, the boring work for you so you can understand how it affects your investments. And so to, to really address that question in terms of, is the Fed going to pivot? Are they going to do anything? I mean, the short answer is they've been pretty, pretty, pretty hard, you know, taking a hard stance on how they're going to feel for the rest of the year. They've reacted to overwhelming data in real time and been flexible, but in the absence of any changes in underlying economic data, they're going to continue doing what they said they've been doing. And when I mean, we look at this data, it's just not enough to make a change. And so what they're going to do is continue to raise interest rates. Maybe they start 
doing it at a slower rate, but their entire narrative is to not raise it as much that consumers aren't expecting. They want to ultimately kind of foreshadow what they're going to do and then do it. That That's really the, the most important thing for them is to, to get behind a narrative that people can understand and follow. Um, and so that's what we anticipate them doing in the next uh, cycle of rate hikes. And then as they've been saying, until we get new data over the, the back half of this year, uh, continue to either raise at decreasing rates or start leveling it off, at which point um, things can start to normalize. But I think the number one thing that we really need to take a look at as investors for our own portfolios is are we going to ultimately have this softer hard landing? Everyone's talking about that. And it's really too early to say, you know, a lot of people out there want to say we are, we won't. Based off the data, we can make guesses, but it's predicting economics is is a is a battle most people honestly are not going to win. Um, so that's for us, you know, like I said, we're not gonna say this won't happen or will happen. Data tells us that we might have some sort of hard landing. Um, so I think what's really interesting right now is that the world runs on debt. And so what we want to continue seeing as debt gets more expensive, can companies continue to shoulder how expensive this is? We're seeing a ton of layoffs. We're seeing people be precautionary, but the underlying economics are still strong. So as long as we start peaking towards rates soon and then start dipping them back on the other end, the economy and the markets then can continue to kind of trudge on and, and use this time to understand what the next year should look like. But I think the biggest thing that could really throw a wrench in any of this is just, do we have some sort of hard recessionary event where consumers stop spending and businesses have to just start doing mass layoffs? That's really going to be one of the, the biggest things we watch. And then past that, you know, oh, uh, can anyone drops in a nuke in Eastern Europe or in Taiwan or anywhere, it completely changes everything. So like, there are just so many moving pieces. So as soon as you think that you you know what's going on, continue to stay updated. Um, things things change on a daily basis more so than they have in the last decade. So that is the biggest thing. But for right now, we believe that this year should continue to be kind of up and down, up and down, up and down until we have a really good understanding of when rates peak. And then as long as we don't have a severe pullback, we could be looking at a pretty good rally, I think, at the, the back half of next year. And that's really exciting, too, and just kind of keeping that in mind and really just looking into all of the very complicated factors that could really mess that up. Like, that's why you're not seeing the market absolutely rip on this, because if you could get inflation more under control, then you would see the markets blow up on this. But if it's completely in line, so much of like the next year and a half is essentially being priced in by the market right now. And so the key play right now is finding companies that can keep their costs under control in such a way that they do not get completely consumed by margin declines and debt, right? And that's what we're really watching for as we, you know, see this play out. And that's how we have evolved our strategy moving forward. Again, the main thing we're always looking for is these long-term plays that we can make so that we can, you know, make some short-term gains during a, you know, potential recessionary event, but also set ourselves up for strength in the long term, which is why you're finding us make defensive plays that have some very 
potentially more offensive capability in terms of growth plays like Caterpillar, which is keeping its cost under control and just absolutely popping off on the back end here. Stocks like First Solar, which we put out a report on because they finally hit our price target as they are using U.S. tax breaks to establish international dominance. But Justin, one thing you did allude to that I want to get into now is sort of the remainder of our outlook for 2023. We've been kind of talking about for the past three episodes, right? One thing we're beginning to see is that this is the year of bifurcation. You're seeing a, a, a complete divergence in terms of how very large sectors of the world economy are dealing with the pressures that, you know, the pandemic and all of the cascading failures that came after that, you know, how we're dealing with all of those pressures, right? Specifically China. Uh, we've seen China completely bail on all of its COVID precautions and also be a lot more softening on its stance towards the U.S., which is really encouraging. Like, it's really awesome to not think about, you know, an invasion of Taiwan and this whole Russia situation turning into World War III. But as we look into this and our analysts start analyzing, you know, Chinese tech stocks again and potentially make some picks there, how are we thinking, you know, the Chinese government is going to keep, you know, their hand on the till there, so to speak? Do we see growth coming out of China? Do we see that softening actually happening? Or is this kind of like a temporary blip and an ongoing sort of decline in that country? It's interesting. I mean, if you pay attention to anything during this podcast, I think chatting through some of this China stuff and some of this Russia stuff is going to be by far the most interesting um, outside of just like the political component of it. If China makes massive shifts towards the direction that some people are talking, same thing with Russia, um, which I want to talk about in a bit for for the Russian stuff. And that stuff is honestly mind-blowing. Um this could just change the world, the way the world operates. And honestly, if anything, put the U.S. at more of kind of the centerfold, more so than they are already, which is hard to believe, of the world economy and the world market. Um, so specifically with the China stuff, I know every single headline is talking about China, you know, becoming the next world superpower, more so than the U.S., their economy's growing. But a lot of data that's been coming out of China recently has just basically been that the Chinese are more or less lying. Uh, their head of state um, is, from reports that we've been getting so far, is that he's running a very, very kind of authoritative, like authoritarian government. No one can question him, and he's kind of just not listening to anyone. Uh, and so due to that, there's been a lot of lies that have come out in China. One apparently is in relation to the population. Um, the numbers that they're saying in terms of population growth are not what they claim to be. The reason that's important is because right now you have a very old population of China that's continuing to age, but is the bulk of wealth and output for the country. As that population ages, ultimately dies, there's not enough younger people to A, keep that population fed, hungry, and the economy going, and then B, people to replace them, all the jobs that they're doing now. And so if that population growth is really slowing based on what we understand, the economy in China will effectively be totally at risk for a handful of reasons. One, there's just not going to be enough people to even produce food there because the population is declining so rapidly. People aren't eating. Obviously, people are dying, and that puts a real issue on just the overall political relationship within China on top of what is already highly contested issue with we see, you know, uh, every single day people rioting and, and just being upset what's going on. Add hundreds of millions of starving people, and that will completely change what's going on and, and amplify it even more. Uh, past that, we're seeing just continue China, China crackdown 
on data, on working with uh, companies within their kind of space in general. So, I mean, long story short, we'll see how this plays out. But if the numbers continue to be as fabricated as we believe they are, and population growth continues to decline the way that we believe, this will take, you know, a decade to play out. But we could actually be looking at a real, real slowdown in China rather than what everyone in the media is saying uh, is actually going to be this massive speed up. I think past that too, what another really interesting point is we've historically had a great relationship with China from an economic perspective because things are really cheap to produce there. Um, that's why we went there in the first place. Um, and that's why we have a lot of our production done there today. But things in China are starting to get significantly more expensive for a handful of reasons, which we'll lay out as it relates to a lot of the Russia stuff. But because things are getting so expensive right now, things are actually cheaper to produce in Mexico than they are in China, which was something that was happening in the 70s, 80s, and 90s um, with a lot of the auto industry, which what we're seeing could be a massive theme over the next decade. So we've talked about this before, but basically due to supply chain issues, outside of the money component, a lot of companies want to bring operations back on shore to mitigate all of these supply chain issues. You add in the fact that labor is starting to be significantly more cheaper in Mexico than it is in China, and logistically, that becomes cheaper to ultimately get here. And we could be looking at a massive, massive shift from all of a lot of our work done overseas in Asia back onshore into Mexico, which was what happened in the 70s, 80s, and you know into the 90s as well. And if that happens, our relationship with China, A, we don't necessarily need them to the extent that we need anymore. And then B, our goods, if anything, become cheaper here in the US because labor is cheaper for the people producing it. And it doesn't have to go be shipped on a container across the world. It just has to cross the border. So we'll see how this all shapes out. And like I said, this is going to take years and years to play out. But ultimately, for companies that are continuing to expand within China, this could be a massive detriment for them relative to companies who are starting to bring more of their operations onshore. We see it with Constellation Brands. We have an entire write-up with them on our page about them building a lot of their plants for Corona uh, and some of their beer distributors in Mexico. We, we've seen it with a handful of brands. And again, this is going to take some time to play out. But ultimately, this could change fundamentally how the markets, how the world works. And honestly, from a geopolitical like standpoint, in terms of being scared of China, they might be continuing to lose their edge, which is, again, the complete opposite of what you'll, you'll read in most uh, media outlets. And a testament to that, too, just to kind of help us segue into this, is keeping in mind that the amount of control that countries like Russia have on energy supply kind of suggested that if Russia wanted to invade Ukraine, they could have just choked out the rest of the world energy-wise. And that was kind of part of the plan, so to speak, like Russia threatening Germany and everyone with their energy supplies throughout the course of 2021, uh, sorry, 2022, and that just completely failing, like natural gas prices have fallen beneath where they were when the invasion started in February of last year, as we approach, you know, that terrible one year mark there. So to give you that kind of segue there, Justin, like understanding that like, the U.S.'s position has somehow managed to strengthen internationally throughout all of this through this kind of proxy war in Ukraine. Um, how How is that going to play out now that we're about to hit this one-year anniversary here? Like, Russia did not win the economic aspect of this at all. Um, is there any kind of, like, increasingly 
drastic measures that can happen now that it looks like this offensive is beginning to kick off in Ukraine as Russia tries to, you know, use the beginnings of spring to actually push forward and try to get some gains back? Or is this one of those things where it's just going to be kind of this grinding failure for them and they're going to have to get desperate with what they're going to do? Yeah, I mean, the the Russian shit is honestly, and Russian Ukraine, that shit is honestly nuts. Um, what is going on there? I, I don't know. Obviously, people know it's a big deal um, from just like a humanity perspective, but how it'll fundamentally change the world in 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, I don't think people realize, you know, how big of a deal this is. And so let me do a brief recap and then I can your point, talk about it a little bit forward looking. But when Russia first went into Ukraine, they never thought that they actually were going to have this big of an issue. Ukraine historically has been very corrupt um, and they haven't been really able to defend themselves based on what we've seen in past conflicts. And so Russia went in and thought it would be a very similar scenario. Um, and they went in for a handful of reasons, which we won't discuss but effectively thought they'd be able to take it back over and ensure some of their domestic security by increasing their borders um, at other checkpoints throughout Eastern Europe. What obviously happened, they were completely wrong. Putin went full dictator mode and ultimately started firing, killing people, and just doing whatever it takes to try and win this war. Fast forward to today, January, absolutely freezing in Russia, a lot of the infrastructure have been either frozen over, completely destroyed. Um, and so it's going to take time now over the next several months for them to get a lot of their equipment, infrastructure, everything that's been kind of messed up throughout this winter period back online. And it's anticipated that in the springtime, a lot of these countries uh, in Eastern Europe, really obviously specifically Russia and Ukraine, we're, able, we're going to be able to see the real like totality of what that conflict could really look like come spring when they're revitalized and fighting a war that they're both on kind of the same conflict here. And so nukes aside, which I do want to address in a second, because that obviously throws a wrench in, in everything. So like, let, let's definitely get to talking about that. The economic output and, you know, the the point of this podcast is to talk about the economic economic side is that the conflict in the war in Russia and Ukraine, depending on who wins, ultimately will change the world forever. And so let's look at Russia's you know, main economy. It's mostly uh, exporting food, uh, specifically wheat, and then also exporting energy. They're 10% of the world's energy output. Um, and if you look, if you start really getting specific into where Russia produces oil, most of them are in like Siberia or super far in the north where it's like obviously absolutely freezing. And so when we look at a lot of these oil fields, A, a lot of the infrastructure has been like straight up destroyed. Like the pipelines that transport oil from the north to the south where people live in the rest of Europe have either been destroyed or completely destroyed or sorry, or just completely damaged due to what's going on in the war. And then past that, just the age, the cold, the proximity, all this stuff. And that's the only way Russia really gets their oil from, from where they're drilling to the rest of the population. And so while it isn't collapsed yet, if it does collapse the pipelines, that means that ultimately Russian oil would just cease to happen. They would have no way of getting it down here and from an economic perspective that's actually affordable for the rest of their population because the only way it gets down here is via pipeline. And so what would happen is 
they can't transport the oil down here. They stop drilling because there's no point to drilling. It's just burning money at that point. And then basically at that point, the the area that Russia Russia drills oil for is at risk of then freezing over. And the last time it freezed over, because this did happen in history, was when the Soviet collapsed in 1989. It ended up taking 32 years for Russia to ultimately get back to Cold War production levels, drill through that frozen land, and ultimately regain the infrastructure that took them years to build. So if Russia ultimately destroys in some capacity these pipelines, their oil output, which is 10% of the energy of the world, could be offline overnight which is absolutely insane if you think about it. So now let's bring that kind of back to the rest of the world. So the U.S. has become one of the biggest drillers over the last one to two years to mitigate this exact risk, which is relying on other people for their energy and domestic security. And so the U.S. has been really good at doing that. And ultimately, and that's why we've seen in the U.S. specifically, prices even in the last month or two come down significantly. But when you look at the rest of Europe, um, I mean, geographically, they're they're located in the same continent as Russia. They rely on their energy. They're not going to be in the same situation should it go offline. So the U.S. is actually being smart and kind of getting ahead of that should that happen. But the rest of Europe will ultimately be in a situation where they run into a supply crisis for energy. And should that happen, the prices of energy in Europe could three, four, five X from what they are now, which sounds crazy. Um, but this has ha- actually happened before. The world didn't always used to be priced at a barrel of energy of oil in the US. It's the same thing as in Australia and the same thing as Russia. There is different prices. Um, so if you disappear four to five million barrels of crude oil from Russia every day, we're estimating that energy f- or oil prices, you know, they're in the 70s now could be up to $170, $200 Easy. Before World War II, like we said, there was no global oil price. Every single country, every single empire controlled its own production and maintained its own market. But because of this global now phenomenon where countries really operate uh, not independently of each other, that became this global oil price. But again, like we said, if we move to this world where Russian energy shuts down, we're relying on our own domestic security, our own domestic supply, we could easily see the oil that's coming out of Texas, North Dakota, uh, Alaska start being worth at what it is now $70 a barrel while the rest of the supply ultimately is worth 170 200 and if that happens i mean the world is going to to massively to massively change the implications would be insane and that's the most important thing to keep in mind. Some of the major narratives we're looking into is this idea of bifurcation. As, as things become more local, like like we said, labor is moving more to the U.S., Canada, and Mexico as we think about production, leaving that sort of like global paradigm where we call a Chinese factory, make a billion little things, sell them throughout America. Now we're making smaller runs, more automated here in North America. We're going to watch this kind of bifurcation as we kind of drift back potentially into being more of a unipolar world again and you know the end of history may be back on the menu in the uh in the the dark brandon years so to speak so it's really interesting period as we watch these shifts really crystallize now that we're seeing sort of like the long threads of what's going to happen post covid um i think one thing that's really important too as we think about that is certain other areas of demand as oil can potentially just go totally bananas on the european side of the equation justin one key thing there is that's driving 
up immense investment and demand for materials for, you know, a more electrified and renewable energy grid. People are more looking more into solar panels, electric vehicles, that sort of thing. And so the next big step for energy security is finding all these materials that you need to make solar panels. Uh, batteries, electric vehicle nonsense, so on and so forth. Like, uh, that's the main thing I want to look into real fast with you. I know we've kind of gone over time a little bit, but it's really important to talk about energy security as it moves forward, because that's going to be the next big thing. Talking about these rare earth elements, your lithiums, your cadmiums, your tellurides, uh, your um, uh, nickel, cobalt, and a little bit of graphite as well. Not as not as important on the graphite side, but still. Justin, when you look into that too, um, what are the kind of the big things we can see as this EV market heats up? Are we going to see an absolute... Uh, uh, constriction of the supply chain as everyone just tries to buy everything to make renewable energy now that energy price yep. oil and natural gas are going to go totally nuts yeah i mean it's a it's a very good question i think a really good segue so and i i can go over i have some some time this is a good topic to talk about and really changes everything so you talk about like the supply chain which is like from an outsider's perspective it sounds like the most boring thing in the world the supply chain the supply chain like who gives a shit but like Ultimately, A, there's a way to invest in it so that like we can all profit, and B, then it affects every single good that goes downstream. So we just spent 10 minutes talking about oil. But to your point, what about renewables? Um, we're trying to secure our own energy future. You know, it it's not just a future that relies on oil, it relies on solar, it relies on electric vehicles, it relies on wind, all these different components. But let's think about then outside of the the actual raw energy, the materials needed to support that. So if you look at batteries, batteries, while, you know, they're using electricity, need lithium, need cobalt, need these other internal materials that help conduct and ultimately supply these machines with electricity. And a lot of these alternative energy sources need the same materials. They need cobalt, they need lithium, whether it's wind or, or hydro or, or whatever it may be. These are the best materials that we've found that ultimately help conduct and and transport power until we discover things that are, are not in the periodic table, new elements. This is what we're stuck with. Um, and so it's going to be the same struggle that you see in terms of drilling for oil. Now we're going to be drilling for cobalt. We're going to be drilling for lithium. And so a lot of the stocks that we've started to cover have been playing into those key themes, especially as the need for energy continues to increase as we get more people, as we you know, continue with our dominance of technology. These are things that we need. I mean, if you look at the, U if you go to the United States list of domestic security issues, materials like lithium, like cobalt are right at the top of the list. So these are super important, even so, so much so the U.S. government is identifying it as a key to our national security. Um, so within that, TPL, no secret. If you haven't seen it, go to our site. Been a top stock of ours for a while that sits on a lot of, West Texas crude down in Texas um, and benefits from water rights, oil rights of a lot of these companies. So past that, moving into kind of energy 2.0, huge theme for us. And we'll be releasing a lot more of this information on top of what we've already released today. Uh, and earlier this month, we released a great piece today in our offshore portfolio that talks to just this, um, which is finding companies that ultimately mine and manufacture these materials. And so there's two different classifications. The first is your TPLs. They don't actually do anything. They just own the land, which is the best business model of all time. You got five employees, a 300 square foot office, 99% profitability. And all you do is pay investors out year over year. And you're sitting on land that is literally appreciating day over day. 
So TPL is one of those plays. There's a few others that we haven't released yet. We will be releasing soon, but they're in Canada primarily as well in South America that are sitting on massive, massive, uh, expensive and affordable land or not affordable, sorry, uh, high demand land. That's for iron. That's for cobalt lithium. Those are going to be huge plays that just own the land. If we're looking at actual drillers, actual, you know, miners, anyone who's getting stuff from the land, there's somebody in South America who we just talked about again, more in depth on the, the website. Um, but they're huge. They're the biggest lithium producer in the world, uh, in South America, in Chile specifically. And they've seen massive tailwinds over the last year. Stock prices dipped a little bit over the last month because they are a huge supplier to the EV industry. The EV industry, to your point about how's it going to look next year, there's a slowdown in demand because these things are expensive. Ultimately, if we're in a recession, people are spending less money, there's less of demand. But it's obvious over the long run, whether it's not electric vehicles, but alternative energy in in general, it's a part of our future. Um, So ultimately, investing in the underlying infrastructure, the underlying materials, and the underlying land is a way to ultimately benefit off this trend without having to pick, you know, the bullshit between who's the company who everyone loves. Do Do you want to buy a Tesla? Do you want to buy a Lucid? None of that stuff matters because ultimately someone's going to win. So wouldn't you rather bet on the companies who are supplying all those winners? Those have been a lot of the plays we're looking at for Solar's another one. I mean, those are huge, huge themes for 2023 and beyond and things we've identified as massive opportunities that we're really excited to kind of invest in and think we've been early adopters for for investments like this, specifically with TPL over the last few years. Exactly. And I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Like we were very focused on the digital throughout the 2010s as we figured out, you know, really high margin growth plays online. 2020, the 2020s are going to be very much about the tangible, the physical, the manufactured economy. Everyone's flipping about, about flipping out about AI when in reality we need to be flipping out about all of these supply chains that we're thinking about as we roll through this. So really excited. I mean, AI, like listen, AI is super important. There's going to be a massive theme. I mean, the, the chat GPT stuff, you know, it's insane. I mean, if you haven't seen it, it, it's basically Google on crack in terms of it telling you not only what you want to know, but answers to questions that are completely arbitrary, helps you creatively. It, it's insane. The technology is not understated, but those are investment opportunities that are in the media that are expensive and are being traded. Chat GPT just got valued at $30 billion and they don't make a single billion dollar, a single dollar in revenue. Do they live up to that valuation? Maybe. But is that an investment that you want to make? Figuring out how a company becomes worth $30 billion when they're not, when they'll make a dollar. You know, we've made those bets, we'll make those bets. But I think right now, making the bets on companies that you know have good business models are growing and there'll be a huge demand for them. Those are the bets we want to take. Um, they're smarter, maybe slightly less upside, but a fraction, a fraction of the risk. And if the last year or two has taught us anything, going after NFTs, these crazy pie in the sky ideas. Yeah, they'll make some people money, but you know, for every one person that makes money, 99% of people are losing.
When in doubt, go long. And that's another major theme for us is finding those ways to de-risk and make sure that we maintain that growth over the next five years. And to give you a little bit of inside baseball there, audience, while we do agree that like AI is super important, uh, first of all, ChatGPT hasn't really changed our thesis on holding on to our what holdings we have in Alphabet, and it hasn't changed how much we want to hold in Microsoft just yet. We're still doing a lot of like back-end due diligence there because while ChatGPT, yes, is valued at $30 billion, every single query from them is extraordinarily expensive in terms of how much resources it takes. So not not sure how long ChatGPT is going to be available to the public and not quite sure like what the actual business play there is. There's a lot companies can do with it, but it's a pricing model that's kind of hard to game out. So very much in the opening innings here, really excited to see what GPT-4 is going going to be as it is far more complicated and therefore far more um, utilizable than GPT-3, the current model that ChatGPT uses. So AI, big old question mark right now in terms of it's going to have a huge effect, but where are those huge effects going to be? That's something we're going to be watching really closely. Regardless, audience, we really appreciate your time. Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder and chief analyst here at Moby.co. Love the Thursday recording. We got a lot more out of this one than we usually do since we're so just kind of burnt out at the end of the week. Glad we got this one in. Any final thoughts from you before we go ahead and read the credits here, man? Obviously, we managed to stay here pretty long. No, I think uh, I think it's pretty good. I mean, there's a lot we talked about, a lot of themes, whether it's AI, which I'd love to dive into more, Russia, China, inflation, nuclear wars. There's a, there's a lot going on right now. We're at a very interesting time in history. Um, the next few years, we've said this for a while, will ultimately dictate what the next decade looks like. So it's very, very good. Exactly. So, and that's what we're going to keep trying to parse out here. We're very much in the fog of war when it comes to a lot of these narratives, audience. So we're going to keep, you know, crunching the numbers and seeing what we can find here. Regardless, audience, we really appreciate you being here with us for this slightly longer episode and also this kind of differently timed episode. Thanks for listening to us twice a week in one week. That's pretty sick. We really appreciate you being here with us. But just so you know, audience, this podcast is produced, hosted, and voiced by me, Peter Starr. It was also all the intellectual value from this podcast comes from our analyst team, which which is led by Justin Kramer, CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst here at Moby.co. Audience, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for listening. Find us over at Moby.co slash go if you want to join. And otherwise, check us out on Instagram and TikTok as well. Really appreciate your time, but as always, we'd like to leave you with peace, love, and incremental gains. Everyone be well. Thank you so much.